Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm in Boston today. My guest is Art Morales, who's the CTO of Analgesic Solutions. It's a, it's a company that does a lot of work with data and analytics uh, to help pharmaceutical companies with uh, clinical trials. Yes, hi. Uh, <laughs> specifically in the pain area. Specifically in the pain area. But, you know, this. I'm really glad we got to finally meet. And, uh, of course, uh, thank you for the introduction, which was, came from a, a common colleague at uh, West Monroe Partners. But uh, you know this area of, of uh, really of medical research, where it's intersecting now with data and machine learning, is I really think such a fascinating area for the future of health and medicine. Um, so maybe just just to set the scene a little bit, can you tell me just a little bit how I guess the process of clinical trials works now and why data is such an issue? Uh, sure. So um, when the by the time you get to the trial. You've done all this basic research and you start to go and you have your preclinical information, your toxicology, and you go to your phase one trial, which is now about collecting um, pretty much safety information. Right. Once you have that, and but while you're doing that, you're starting to collect any information they can get. They, they get vitals, they get um, EKGs, they get um, some, how are they feeling, they get adverse events. It's a very on. regulated process. It's very regular, very regulated, and there's a lot of data that is not collected. In the past, a lot of that data was usually collected by paper. So the analysis of that data was not that easy. As we're going into more sort of electronic data collection and that data is now available, you really have a lot more data. And, and when you look at a trial, even though your final um, endpoint may be a specific measure, you really have a lot of ancillary data that you're collecting. And most of that is used to monitor the safety of the trial, but some of that can be used to do sort of other analysis. So in many cases, you might see the primary endpoint, you, you'll hear the news that the primary endpoint wasn't reached, but the secondary endpoint did. So that gives the, the, the pharmaceutical uh, company a, an idea of, well, if we do this trial again, we need to, there's something else that we didn't notice or we didn't predict, or there's something that else that is more interesting than just what we thought was going on. And something I, I hadn't appreciated before was the distinction between development and, and research, mm -hmm. uh, because we talk about pharma innovation, but there's a, the concept of innovation is not as, common in development as it is in research, right? That's correct. So in, in, in research, it's you're encouraged to ask questions and you're really trying to understand what is my drug doing? What is my compound doing? What is what is my biologic? And what else is it doing? And you're welcoming accidents too, right? I, exactly. Which accidents are like, great. They're, they're, they're usually welcome. And they're, <laughs> like they're, penicillin. <laughs> exactly. Uh, once you get to the point that you've now sort of made the commitment that this is my lead compound or biologic and I'm going to try it in humans, now you go and you enter a very regulated process. And, the, and during that process, you really don't want to take the risk quite often to ask those questions. You, you might ask them in a post-hoc analysis, but during the trial, you have to go very specifically and you tell the FDA or the EMA, this is the analysis I'm going to run two years from now when the data is done. And that is what's going to help me get that drug approved. And now, of course, the cost goes significantly higher to run a trial compared to running an experiment right. in preclinical. Um, in pre, in so there's so much cost and risk involved in, in running trials. How does data, and I guess the modern approach of, of analyzing it, reduce some of that risk? So the FDA has, has really is trying to go into this by, by, by saying, 
we can do risk-based monitoring. We, we know we have so much data that we can't, we can look at everything. So be, being smart about what data we monitor and trying to find points where, look, there may be a problem here and how the trial is running because we're monitoring and looking for specific signals. That's one way that you can now look at, bring models in to see how the, how the trial is running. Um, it's, there, the, the amount of data that's coming in is so much. You, have, you may have a trial with 1,000 patients in 200 sites across 12 different countries. You can't really look at everything. So you now have to start to look at models. You like start looking at trends. You have to start looking at how are my sites behaving. That A lot of these models start to come into play. Well, what are you guys doing that's, I guess, so revolutionary? Sure. So what we what we what we've done is we're we're bringing in concepts from uh, manufacturing, from in in this case statistical process controls, to look at the different metrics that we are monitoring during the trial from a patient, either as, uh, an assay sensitivity. So we may be uh, if we're doing a pain study, we may be monitoring pain um, scores. So how how much pain the patient has on a daily basis or on a weekly basis, and we monitor those those different metrics throughout, not just at a specific point in time, but throughout time. So we may be looking at how is that variable behaving throughout weeks, months, and looking at the, at the patient level and at the site level. So by bringing this uh, statistical process control techniques, we can, tr we can look for signals, so aberrate, aberrant signals that can give us, maybe, maybe there is something, there's a trend to something that's going in a, in a specific direction. It's not no longer. So, just, so you don't actually have to wait till the trial fails in order to intervene? We, can, we don't have to wait until the trial fails in order to see that there's something odd going on hmm. that we can then further explore. What, what, what's, the, what's an example of something odd? So we, we may be looking at, for example, a site that is taking longer to fill up paperwork. This is a very, very, very basic thing, but it may not be past a threshold that if you say, well, I'm only going to look at sites a priori that are more than 20 days late in filling out the paperwork. But if you start looking at sites that every, every, every week it's that measure how long it took to fill out the paperwork, it takes an extra few days. Now you start seeing a trend that maybe if you project that line to three weeks from now, they will be out of control. So you don't have to wait until that happens because the, the methods will allow you to identify that there's a trend going on. Yeah. And maybe it's a false, false positive signal. Great. But you at least know that this is where you should focus on because there is a trend going on. You know, uh, the other thing we were talking about before was uh, you can start to see the potential impact of the placebo effect. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess in the area of pain uh, medication, this must be a particularly problematic issue, right? Uh, I mean, why, do, why do trials fail because of placebo? Right. So, so in, in anywhere, placebo effect is a real effect, and there's some recent publications that have shown how, how real this is. But in, in pain, this is very obvious because if I if we have a trial and I give you if I give you either a drug or the placebo, there's a very high likelihood you're going to feel better. Right. Sometimes that might just be because you think you're getting it, or just because you're being treated. Just the fact that you're going to a doctor, seeing a nurse, that alone will make you feel better because right. you're you're, you're taking attention. care. Yeah. You're, you're getting attention exactly. Um, in and and that's that's what kills trials in quite often because so, so might, it's not that the drug doesn't work. It's just it, that, so that happens. But but by the time if we if you think about it, by the time the drug gets into a trial, there's so much preclinical data that this drug this drug was likely shown to work in a, in an in vitro assay, just the enzyme or some other target. Um, it was shown to work in animals in some model that may or may not translate to humans. But there's a pretty high likelihood that the mechanism by which the, the, the drug is supposed to work is not necessarily fully understood, but there's a hint. 
So what what happens often is the the signal the um, the drug will will have an effect, but so will placebo. Hmm. So if you were giving the drug to somebody in, in the general population, there's a high likelihood that it, that it would work. But because the placebo response is so high, you can't separate them. So you can't show that your drug is higher than placebo, and that's what will kill your trial. That's that's the measure. That in the end, your metric to know if your trial worked is how was my drug better, significantly better than placebo. I, I can see that this is you know quite similar to other industries in that on, on the research side, there's still a lot of scope for human ingenuity and for new connections and mm-hmm. discovery and accidents. But on the development side, especially around testing, do you think this is an area where algorithms, AI, automation are going to take this more and more out of human hands? I, I think there's a, there's a huge room for improvement. I think it, it is a slow process because it is such a regulated area. So number one, it's not only regulated, but it's, it's you have to be conservative because there is so much going on. I mean, you have companies, especially small, small biotechs, that, that all their eggs are in one basket. Right. That one trial that needs one, to work. That one potential super drug, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. And and the way you your funding happens by the time you, you have enough funding to finish that trial and if it doesn't work. And he, yeah, because I know in... Um, in in, uh, in health tech, essentially, every tranche of funding is contingent on successful trial stages. Right? It, it, it's usually successful in a trial. Sometimes you get lucky and you, you're able to show, you, look, our plan is to do phase one, two, and two A or something like that. And we get funding through all of that. But if any hiccups happen throughout, and sometimes the hiccups can be operational, it can be just you, you have a trial that looks to be successful, you submit it for approval and the, the agency has an issue with it. And that's that's a nightmare because you, in order to, quite often what could come back is you need to repeat the trial, you need to do more analysis, and now you need to figure out where that fund is coming from. So, so by definition, you have to be conservative, and and that that, unfortunately, really um, hinders the amount of innovation that you can have during development. What are other areas of clinical trials? Do you think that there's scope for more improvement? Uh, I, I mean. Uh, it seems like there are many moving pieces here, from uh, selecting participants to uh, to managing, you know, sites across multiple countries. And are, are we making progress on? Uh, we on absolutely the yes. So we absolutely are. So if if you look at you know trials now versus trials ten years ago, the amount of technology that has gone into the fact that the data is all electronic, the fact that you can very quickly see if adverse events happens. You know, the, every site is, has a much easier time reporting the data for each patient and also has a much easier time to report it when something happens. Right. Um, so the ability to then finish a trial and have the data available pretty quickly, that's a pretty huge improvement. In the past, it would take weeks, months in order to have go from the last patient out to having data available for edit, editing, for, for, for analyzing. Once you have that, that by making that shorter, you're, you're really making, able to make decisions quicker. So data is making a, a significant improvement. The, um, you have a lot of um, more availability of the data that you can do at post hoc analysis. So especially when a trial is done, you can then start to ask questions afterwards. Yeah. Not during the trial, but you can ask those questions afterwards and say, well, maybe maybe this wasn't perfect, but maybe I can make some changes and to go to my next trial. So, so you have a lot more ancillary data, too, because it's easier, easier to collect. It, it feels a bit like that the future of drug development health is it's becoming more of an information and data issue. I mean, Absolutely. is the future of pharma, in a sense, are they really becoming information companies? I, I believe so. So I believe that you know we've gone from the, the point where 
IT was a, just a necessary evil to now you you really build everything around the information technology. And, right. And it's 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 funny because I've always made fun of the fact that you know people will say, <laughs> well, you're the IT guy. I'm like, yeah, I do IT. But really, the technology is the backbone of every company. Um, if you cannot analyze your data, if you cannot innovate throughout it, you're just left with the fact that you're going to be slower than anybody else. And you're going to miss the signals. Quite often, you, you can do so much more. There's so much more data available that you can do a lot of work on existing data without really having to dose another patient. So you can reanalyze things. Is there a strong culture of technology in pharma companies or they tend to be quite conservative? It, there, there is a strong culture. There's sometimes a problem with um, the, the peaks and valleys of, of technology. So you develop, you spend a lot of money developing a lot of technology. And then you really can't keep spending that much money. So then you, you're stuck with it for five years. Mm. So switching away from that is very hard. The, the solutions that people have are very sticky. So mm. changing and in, in going into something new is hard. Um, the industry has certainly gone up. Um, on the, the ancillary industry of providing the software tools has, has improved quite a bit. So there's a lot more out there that you don't have to build yourself. So you yeah. look at 10 years ago, everything we looked at, we have to build it. Now, when you look at all these tools, they're available. What, what, what does the 21st century pharma tech stack look like? Well, I think it's, a lot of it is, is going to be given as commodity. So you will be able to, you can, and you can do quite a, quite a bit of that already into, you're running a trial, you don't have to worry about the technology running the trial. You don't have to worry about your databases. You will it be cloud-based? Yes, it is cloud. It's also available. It's not It's not like every company has to build their own. Right. So so there, there will be, there's nice competition in the, in the marketplace, but it is available. It's not, and you don't have to worry about, well, am I going to make the decision to do an electronic diary or do I need to do a paper-based diary? That's an obvious decision. Yeah. You don't have to worry about the FDA thinking, well, I want to do a paper-based because I need the data. No, everything's it's going to be faster because you have all the technology and you have better data standards. So a big, a big thing that has improved is the fact that now that you're electronically collecting the data and you have data standards and to come in, come up vocabularies, so now you're able to analyze things and do cross analysis easier right. because now everybody calls it the same thing, right. which is was a big deal. You know, ten years ago it was very hard to do. And this will get interesting though. When I mean, the cost of sequencing our genomes has fallen dramatically, and of course now people are are looking at the personalized medicine and drug interactions with our specific genetic makeup. But of course, this is going to create issues not only on uh, for trials and drug testing, but for doctors making recommendation. I mean, the sheer amount of information mm-hmm. and data. In some ways, do you think it's going to take longer for us to get the tech right in order to get this right than actually get the science right? Absolutely. And, and there's, a, there's a number of companies, especially Big Pharma, because they're the ones that can afford it, yeah. that really have, have, have said, we want to sequence the genome of every patient that goes into a trial, regardless of what the trial is for. Oh, right. That's a great, I love that idea. Why? Because, I mean, what, what sort of... Because when you're looking at a trial, maybe you're looking at a trial to look at, um, let's say, asthma. Yeah. And you, your, your population, you're looking at an entire population of patients that they all hopefully have some sort of asthma or, or pain, if you're looking at pain, but they have other, other um, issues too. And during the trial, you're measuring vitals, you're measuring all that information for all those ah. patients. But if at the same time you have the genome, you can now combine all that data and do basically a trial, ideally, without really having to go back and... Right, so it becomes like three-dimensional chess. You know, exactly. Like... You, you now have a lot more information that you can you can slice and dice that information that you may ask questions that had nothing to do with the initial trial. Huh. It had everything to do with your new question of where the science came in. I mean, if you look at what we knew about science five years ago versus now, the target two years ago or five years ago 
for, I don't know, let's say oncology may be the target 10 years from now to be for eye disease. <laughs> and if you can go to the same population of patients that you gave that drug and you measured those biomarkers, you may be able to get that information without ever having to dose another patient. And of course, you could probably find the next Viagra that way too, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> is this... Is, is this an issue in terms of regu- regulation? Like, can, can you count the same results from one trial for a totally different it, it's, it, is, it is. It is absolutely something you have to be very careful where you step. There is the, the consent of the patient. I mean, obviously, the patient owns, the, owns their own genome. Do you have to go into a trial? They, if, unless you give explicit consent to be able to look at your data for something else, the company can't do that. Now, obviously, the companies are trying to say, look, you're doing this for the greater good. You let us do this. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're, we're not gonna be, you know, we're do no evil. We're gonna actually. <laughs> the whole point is to to be able to 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 inc- improve human health, and therefore, our we may be, we would like the your permission to not only look at your data for this trial, but it may maybe any other experiments. Right. Now, clearly, some people might say no to that. I think it's a great idea. I think. I, I mean, it does open up also the potential to start running virtual clinical exactly. trials yeah. as well mm-hmm. because. You can actually start taking whole populations and, and results from different sites, and actually almost in a computer simulator. Exactly, and 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 it is when you when you're thinking about one trial or two trials at a time, it's hard to do because the the number of other conditions that people may have may not may not be enough overlap. Yeah. But if you do this over a thousand trials, you know you're going to find enough patient in a, a, a subpopulation with enough patients for your um, condition of interest. That may or may not, maybe they were all in placebo. That's all to what the ones you do. But now you can look at, combine the geno- genomic information with maybe some bio- biomarkers that you were collecting from many of these trials, yeah. and start to ask post hoc analysis of, 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 of the data. And that, that eventually could start even fitting into research as well, right? Absolutely. And so that's more of a research problem, right? Now, yeah. the researchers want that data. So the researchers, because they're the ones that are going to want to ask the questions. So this is a place where research and development really have to. The closer they are, you know, the, the, you don't have that wall. You you want to break that wall. So you want to be able to get the data from the development because that's the human data. Researchers don't get enough information, enough human information. They're always relying on, you know, what did I do with my animals? There's, do you see a parallel between sort of research and development and farmer and DevOps? You're right. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it is. It's an interesting place where. When you think about DevOps, it was always a given from granted, and it, it had to run. It, there was no no way to change things. But when you start applying some some more um, concepts of of, of of software development into DevOps, it becomes. I mean, it's it's grown significantly if you look at the last five years of that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's um, it, it's just you know, it feels like we're at this tipping point in terms of the availability of information, the ability to process it, and of course now people are wondering about the impact of artificial intelligence. Um, on both the discovery and also, I guess, the conduct of of trials. Where do you see the the most disruptive aspects of artificial intelligence in in pharma? So, and I guess there's limitations as well. Exactly. So one of the, the challenges with artificial intelligence is the amount of data that you really can have for any specific problem. So in the short term, there really isn't enough data. So you're looking at a trial. The amount of data to be able to build a model to predict data. In some cases, you can have models, but they're not. It's a black box. You can't really track down of why that decision was made, for the most part. Um, I think so. A limitation of that is is one of those is that the amount of data that you have to collect in order to make a a good decision, because now you're looking at at really hundreds of thousands of patients. You're not looking at tens of thousands. You're not looking in many cases. Um, so I think that's that's one limitation. There are certain really great applications of artificial intelligence for recommendations. 
Right. So you know, there, I, there is, and I, I don't have the specifics now, but there, there, there's. I've seen some artificial intelligence and and machine learning models used to to cancer to use for um, uh, phenotyping cancer. So you look at all these biomarkers and you make a decision on how to treat a specific cancer. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I think Microsoft are quite heavily exactly. involved. Yeah, exactly. So that's they're, 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 they're looking at you know leveraging um, I think Watson technology. So, so yeah, exactly. So yeah. Watson Watson's been doing that. That's a great place because that's a recommendation. Right. And and you're still having that that allows the the the, the practitioner to really um, wean down the amount of information they have to consume in order to to come to that recommendation, and yeah. then they can take it or leave it. That's because I, so I mean, it's even reading the research is difficult, right? I mean, I, I think I read somewhere that uh, on average there are two new articles added to PubMed every single minute. Yeah, so so it, <laughs> it is exactly we've reached a point where there's no way to really stay abreast of everything that's happening without having to to have specific sort of agents that are looking for that information for you or just really smart Google searches to, right. to, so, to it. So the ability to really ingest that information and have and use that from a digested mo- model, that's really useful. That's a great place for AI. I think being able to have an AI give you, this is what you need to do and you're going to, you better trust me or not or else, it's that we're far from that. But yeah. the ability to, to really at least help you and be an assistant, that's a great place for it. Because this is the thing, and you, you alluded to this before, I mean, that machine learning is a bit of a black box. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have a system which is just studying lots of different um, patients and results and treatments and then just saying, just do this, and you don't actually know how it's come to that conclusion, it's quite frankly terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that, that that's gonna, that's the biggest jump that will ever, that, that that's going to be really hard to make. And I, I, I'm not comfortable making it yet or anytime soon because I, I've written enough code to know how buggy it can be. Right. And, and how things happen that are non non predictable. So the it's very easy to say, well, this is a recommendation, but it's like, would well, you bet your life on it? And that's a place where we're, we're I think we're not we're, we're obviously not there. I don't know when we're going to be there. Right. But to generate a set of options, that, uh... generate options that really uh, allows you to di- allows you to have a digested view of it, and you yeah. can always ignore it. But that digested view is hugely helpful. I, I, you know, just on the other end, the scale of of, of, of actually health providers. I had on this show a couple of weeks back um, a guy called uh, Ali Pasa who runs Babylon Health, mm-hmm. and they were trying to do essentially like a Netflix for doctors. And when I was in the office, there were all of these doctors there, but they weren't talking to patients; they were talking to programmers. They were actually just creating scenarios to help the machines essentially do triage. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the ability, I think the ability to offload, and we do some of that at Autistic Solutions. We have sort of, we take our experts, so Matt Katz, who are, who's our founder and sort of a pain expert. He has all this information that, that he's collected. And if you if he looks at a, at a case, he can say, well, this, this and that, this is what I do. So we, we've worked you know, hard to, to come up with a set of rules and offload a lot of that information to at least do the first screening. Yeah, and in and if you if you think about doing that for for many many different conditions, that's a great great place to do it because you can always ignore it at the end. You can always say, well, that makes no sense, or that makes sense. Let me make sure that that makes sense. So 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 there is a there is a challenge to, to when do you trust it and when when do you take it for granted? You always have to think that it is a prediction. Yeah, and I think the area of pain management, which you guys specialize in, is such an interesting area because it's such a ubiquitous issue for us as human beings, mm-hmm. but it's also something hard that, to pin down. Like it's essentially pain is quite an abstract and very personalized concept. It is, and there's so many different kinds of pains that when when you're looking at how you know, a patient may say that they have the worst pain in the world, but what exactly does that mean? Right, and, and I guess our approach today it's really just about punching people in the face with opiates, right? 
Yeah, <laughs> and, that, and, and, and that's a challenge. I mean, I will tell you from my own experience, I broke a rib a few weeks ago, a few months ago, maybe a month ago. And um, they, at, the, at the hospital, they're like, oh, here's a prescription for opioids for three weeks. I'm like, I don't want it. <laughs> It's like take it with you just in case. Like I don't want it. Like I, I, I you don't want to like a morphine addiction. Like. Exactly. Like I don't. I know I don't need it. I don't like it. I don't want it. And they they basically force me to take it. And that's just the standard of care. And and that's that's a whole set of discussions that we could have some other time, um, because it's a Pandora's box. But but it is it is something that from the pain perspective we're we're still a long way away from being able to treat pain properly. So do you think in some ways some of the things that you guys are doing around you know, understanding variances in trials could almost be used as well around pain management. I mean, if we know the power of placebo effects and things like that, you know, are there better ways to manage pain beyond just the, the, the drug? I, I think, yeah. So I think some of the things that we do, not, not necessarily, so some of it is about being able to track what you, what, what, how you're feeling on a daily basis and, and when changes happen, so be able to detect trends. Or yeah. when, when I mean, I mean she just, the, the sheer act of just measuring it must have an impact <clears> on the... On, Absolutely, and, and and the ability to measure consistently, the ability of a patient to be an accurate pain reporter, to, to know what that they are on a consistent basis when they say a pain of on a scale of zero to ten, a pain of seven, it is a pain of you seven. You can train someone to be a more accurate pain. Reporter, Absolutely, right? yeah, exactly, and we and that we we provide some training to do that, and the ability to say to then trust that number because then you're looking at a change in that number. If you can't trust that 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 score is is, is accurate. When a patient comes to you and says, "No, my pain is now 10, right? Is that a problem that you really need to, to make a make a make a change, and you really need to intervene, or you know that that patient variability is from you know anywhere from three to ten, so you really can't tell much about it. Once you understand, once you can trust that pain measure, uh, and then you can start to make look at trends that are happening. Does knowing that your pain is a three versus a ten make you feel more comfortable with it, or the fact that you're paying attention to your pain that kind of gating principle? You now feel like you're in constant pain. It, it's a great question. I don't. I don't. I don't yet know the answer to that. Uh, it's. A, it's an. It's a very interesting thing because, I, to me, being able to um, vocalize your pain and and really compare it to yesterday's pain is a really interesting point because then <laughs> then now you're like, oh my god, I've never had that much pain in my life. Really? You, you know that is that true? <laughs> or, or do you feel like you have no pain today? Or I, I think that there's still a long ways to go to, to do that uh but it but it is an interesting um, area of, of, of um research that, that i see both of us wearing smart watches and so you know when you're talking about this and the, the measuring of it i wonder how much of this will essentially become consumerized in the future that will will be pushing more of this technology to our consumer wearables i i i'm a i'm a huge proponent of that when you look at apple health you look at uh, microsoft and the others and they are you know you're measuring your weight i, I step on my scale every day and it goes on, on goes on the, on the cloud and some days i know i don't want to step on it because i know it's going to say that, <laughs> that you gain a pound or two but but the ability to then measure other other uh, metrics can only help now the hard thing is it's really hard to be consistent you know it's, it's easy enough to, to keep your, your your food intake for two weeks most people stop using it after two weeks but if you if you have a condition, if you have diabetes, and you you went you know you're looking at um, glucose levels, that blood sugar levels. So we we um, some of these instruments are now automatically uploaded and keep track of it. That's really useful because now you can start to see when you know yeah it varies, but consistently is around a certain number. If if you start to see a trend, then you can identify it. The same thing with pain. If you were able to accurately and consistently measure your pain. You know, you have, a, and and we do this in trials. In trials, the, the patients get a, get an electronic diary in most cases, and they measure, they they report their pain every day. <clears throat> now you can start to see what's going on. 
if you make it, if you now make a consumer a, cons, a consumer version of that, then you can start to see when things are changing. I'm, I'm, I've, I always wanted to say, well, how do you feel on a daily basis? You know, if you have an app that that tells you how do you feel, and some days like I don't feel that great, some days you feel great. If you take, if you step back and take, you know, daily average or weekly averages, you start to see when your behavior is changing. Or maybe you combine that with the fact that you walk less because you're looking at how many right. steps you do, or your day-night cycle, daylight cycle, or sorry, uh, light-dark cycles are different, are longer because you're spending more time in bed. So, so those now you can start to combine those information, which is really easy to collect, and it becomes actionable. It becomes actionable. Yes. Uh, it's been great meeting you. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com/slash-between-worlds.